Greetings. During Sunday morning's message, we had a momentary power outage. I was able to remove most of the offending audio. However, you may notice a slight blip around the 16-minute mark. This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We're looking this morning at verses 14 through 20. I should point out, depending on the translation you're looking at, there may be a verse 21. If you're looking at the ESV and some other translations, there is no verse 21. This is not some sinister scheme to undermine the Word of God, uh, but rather the ESV's following uh, what appear to be the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Uh, it's quite possible that the, uh, the content of verse 21, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting, is uh, actually a reflection of Mark's account uh, that made it into some of the manuscripts of Matthew, but the earliest uh, do not have it, and I'm inclined to think that probably is accurate. It's more likely someone remembering how Mark put it, a scribe might include that uh, than that he would leave it out. And so uh, that, that explains why if you see a verse 21 there that I do not read it, or in the ESV, why it's not there. So let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. When they came to the crowd... A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long? Am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let us pray. Open to us, Father, your word in this early hour of the day as we take upon ourselves to study this passage. Father, we pray for the illuminating grace of your Holy Spirit. Pray, Father, you would feed us and instruct us from the very Word of God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then in life we have what 
we would refer to as a mountaintop experience, uh, a high point in our lives. For some of us, uh, particularly adults among us, uh, a high point like that, a mountaintop experience, might be the day that we married our wife or married our husband, or maybe the days that our children were born. Certainly mountaintop experiences for you children, uh, maybe haven't lived quite as long, but nevertheless have had some highlights in your life, maybe a, a birthday uh, that was especially memorable or a lot of fun that you remember and think back on with uh, good feelings, good memories about it. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here, a mountaintop experience. Uh, maybe other experiences you had, a vacation uh, that was especially enjoyable or some achievement or accomplishment or victory that meant a lot to you. But why do we call them mountaintop experiences? Well, one reason what they represent, it really is a time when you feel like you're on top of the world. Uh, It really is a high moment in your life, uh, one that stands out like a, a mountain peak. But the expression, a mountaintop experience, is actually rooted in a specific historic event, a literal mountaintop experience that was glorious. And we looked at it last week when we studied the passage just prior to this one, the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus, where three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, were with Jesus there on the mountain. And while they're standing there, they are privileged to see Jesus' veil of humanity sort of move aside and to see the majesty the glory, the radiance of who he is as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And there with him, of course, were Moses and Elijah representing uh, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Uh, And they themselves are talking with Jesus and uh, Jesus' disciples hearing the voice of the Father appearing out of this cloud of glory fall down. And when they get up, there's Jesus alone. Uh, and Jesus is there before them. Uh, Moses and Elijah, great as they were, pointed to Jesus, prepared the way for Jesus. A mountaintop experience. In fact, the mountaintop experience. Uh, what could be more glorious than to see God himself and something of his radiance? But the problem with mountaintop experiences, at least here in this world, is that they end. They inevitably come to a conclusion. The vacation is over, the day draws to a close, and we have to return to what we call the real world, the world with its problems, its difficulties, its struggles, its disappointments, bills, relationships, deadlines, all of those things that uh, sort of bring us back down off the mountain. Well, that certainly happened with the first and the original mountaintop experience. Uh, Peter wanted to preserve it. Let's, let's build booths here to house everyone. But uh, even as glorious as that was, that came to an end. And they had to come back down to the mountain, back to a world characterized by sin and sickness and demon possession as we see in the text here before us. As we look at this passage, there's there's one key idea, I think, that stands out in this passage. A key idea is power. This is a passage about power. 
And as we look at it, uh, it basically looks at power from three different ways. Uh, You see here the destructive power of sin. You see here the healing power of Jesus. And you also see here the lack of power in Jesus' disciples. Or if we want to shorten it even more, make it easy to remember, you can think bad power, good power, and no power. Well, first of all, let's look at the bad power, the destructive power of sin in verses 14 through 15. They've come down off the mountain, and this is what they come back to. After this glorious experience, they come back into into the real world, so to speak. They came to the crowd, this crowd gathered at the foot of the mountain, as, as Mark explains. And a man comes up to Jesus and kneels before Jesus, says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. Mark goes into a little more detail in Mark chapter 9 where he describes the same event. He says that this this son of his father uh, manifested this illness by foaming at the mouth, by grinding and gnashing his teeth, by uh, writhing in convulsions, apparently having seizures. Matthew describes him as epileptic. Uh, the word itself literally means moonstruck. And I don't think we're to understand here that he was, uh, as the King James renders it, a lunatic, which is comes from the same word lunar, our word for being moonstruck, so to speak, uh, but that he was having seizures, he was having convulsions, and gives it this name that is translated here epilepsy, although as we will see, there's more going on than just this physical ailment. Now, we've said before in the scriptures that the Bible itself makes a distinction between physical illness and demon possession. We saw that earlier in Matthew, where it says Jesus was healing them of their illness. He was casting out demons. Uh, and it does make a distinction, although sometimes it seems the two are, are connected. Not that every illness, not that every ailment is caused directly and specifically by a demon. But it does seem that where there is a case of demonic activity or demonic possession, it can manifest itself in different ways, certainly as we've seen, including these violent, epileptic or epileptic-like seizures and convulsions and symptoms. And it says he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire, perhaps the fire they have in their home, uh, and often into the water, maybe a well or a lake or something like that. And we've seen already that the demonic uh, effect is self-destructive. It causes harm to the person who is who is afflicted. And so we see here the destructive power of sin, power of Satan, and it's manifested by these convulsions. It's manifested in this demon possession. And as Mark tells us, the man was deaf and mute, couldn't hear, he couldn't speak. Uh, as a result of this demonic infestation. Now, as we look at this, this father who comes on behalf of his son, and we've seen parents coming to Jesus, pleading for mercy for not only for themselves in some cases, but for their, for their child. Uh, he's asking Jesus for relief. And what we see as we look at this man is really just an embodiment, just a, a encapsulated view of sin generally. Since Adam and Eve plunged this world into sin, where their fall, their disobedience, their rebellion against God, sin brings suffering. It always has. Sometimes it's our own sin. 
that brings us consequences of sin, brings us the suffering. Sometimes that's the worst because we, we know we've done it to ourselves. We know that we deserve it. We know we, in a sense, it's self-inflicted. And very often, when someone is suffering, we think, well, did they do something to deserve that? That certainly was a common view in, in the first century, in Jesus' day. Remember John, uh, John chapter 9. There's this man who was born blind, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Well, Jesus replied, neither, but he was born blind so that God's glory might be seen in him. Well, that's not said here, but there's a sense in which that's the case here. Uh, we don't know what this young man did that brought on this demonic activity. Maybe he himself was pursuing the spirit world. Maybe he was engaging in what we would call seances. Maybe he was doing things that opened himself up. Maybe he was engaging in pagan religious practices that involved direct interaction with the devilish, with the demonic. We don't know. And maybe none of that sort of thing. But he, like we, lives in a fallen world. And he's suffering from these ailments. He's suffering from demonic possession. But most of all, he's suffering from the fact that he lives in a fallen world. Sometimes the effects of sin are personal, of some sin that we're involved in that leads to direct personal uh, consequences, harm, pain. But sometimes it's not anything personal that we ourselves have done, but the fact that we live in a fallen world. And as we look at this, this son of this father in his suffering, we, we see sin, we see its effects. He suffers terribly. Now, if you ever wanted to ask a fish what it means to be, or ask someone what it means to be wet, you would never ask a fish because the fish doesn't know what it means, means to be wet. You think, well, that's silly. He lives in water. He's wet all the time. No, he's not. That's just the environment in which he lives. Now, you and I have, are, are so accustomed to living in a fallen world that we can scarcely conceive what it would be like to live in a world where sin doesn't ravish us, where it doesn't have its terrible effects. We, we really cannot even begin to understand or comprehend what that would look like. But we know what it is to suffer. We know what it is to live in a world where people get sick. Uh, and where we hurt, where we suffer disappointment, where we suffer loss, where we suffer pain. And this young man typifies that. We suffer the effects of sins, our own and those of others against us. And we suffer from the effect of sin with a capital S. This, this fallenness, this bent, terrible nature of this fallen world in which we live in. And so we see here the destructive power of sin uh, personified in the in the suffering and ailment and affliction of this young man. So that's the evil power. And Satan is very real. Satan is very much at work, uh, especially in a day like ours. We need to be warned from this passage directly uh, because we live in a day when it's popular to be spiritual. Very often that means pursuing the God within, pursuing myself, self-actualization and so forth. Be careful uh, being a Christian and being spiritual are two very different things. There is a Christian spirituality, uh, usually rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit. But very often today in a popular culture, spirituality basically refers to finding and activating and actualizing myself. But there's also a spiritualism that is pursuing the spirits, the spirit world. And, uh, Young people especially, but all of us, need to beware of seances, of that kind of activity, of opening ourselves up 
to Satan, to the demons, because that's all very real and it's very dangerous. And so don't let anyone lead you into that kind of activity. The Bible forbids it. The Bible shows us the consequences of it. And so we need to recognize the destructive power of sin. And it is a real power. But there's another power, power that's greater. And we see it manifested here. And that is the healing, uh, restoring power of Jesus. Good power. God's power at work. In verses 17, let's pass over 16 momentarily. Uh, the disciples were not able to heal him. And so the man has brought his, brought his son's case to Jesus. And Jesus answered, interestingly... O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Who is Jesus talking about? Well, first of all, let's look at his, this, this response. This situation vexes Jesus. And we, we see here something of, of Jesus' sense of being a sojourner in the world, of, of his, his pre-existence, his... his uh, his glory with his Father before taking on this assignment of becoming one of us and living here in the world and putting up with living in a fallen world and with fallen people. Uh, we've sensed Jesus' frustration sometimes, his, his, um, his patience being tried, and we certainly see that here. Jesus was human. He was divine. He was deity embodied. We just saw that in the transfiguration. But he was human. And he knew what it was to have his patience tried. He didn't become angry. He didn't lose his temper or anything. But he, what he says merely reflects that it, it was trying for him to live here in this fallen world. Now, who's the generation? Well, it seems best to understand it here as just... Those people among whom he lived, which were typical of human beings at all places and all times, in their, in their unbelief, faithless, and in being twisted or perverted. In other words, that unbelief wasn't just innocent, that there was a moral element to it. And we've seen that. This, this moral perverseness to see who Jesus is, to hear his teachings, and to see his miracles... And turn around and say, show us a sign, Jesus, among the, the Jews. But even among his own disciples. And I think they were included in that, in that verbal sigh of Jesus. His own disciples. In their tendency toward unbelief. Their tendency to be slow to uh, catch on to who Jesus is and, and what he is doing here. And so you sense Jesus is being very patient. Think about it. This is God himself living in a fallen world. Himself not fallen, not sinful, but living among and in the midst of a people who are. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. It's no trial. It was no test for Jesus to heal this boy. Jesus merely rebukes the spirit and it's done. Because Jesus is God. Because Jesus' power is absolute. He, he need merely speak the word and it happens. There was no effort. This was no heavy lifting. This was merely an exercise of his sovereign, divine will and it's accomplished. And not just the power that Jesus has, but the power to do good. He is by this one act, together with all the others that we have seen, pushing Satan back. 
reclaiming lost, fallen territory for himself. Again, as we've seen the gospel advance, this is one more instance of it, where Satan is deprived of his prey and his son is claimed for Jesus. He's healed. Satan's grip is immediately torn off of this boy and he is healed. The demonic possession, the manifestations of sickness uh, is immediately removed. Now, Mark includes a delightful element uh, in this that Matthew leaves out. And Mark's and Matthew's focus is a little bit different. Mark includes that wonderful interchange with the father where Jesus says to him, where the father says to Jesus, if you could help me, please help me. And Jesus says, if, you know, all things are possible to him who believes. And, and the father replies with that magnificent uh, response, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, Jesus, I believe you can do it. Absolutely, I believe you can do it. But, um, you know, until I see it happen, there's still this, this reservoir of doubt there. Uh, but what a, what a profound prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Boy, if that doesn't just in a sentence describe my Christian experience, your Christian experience too, I suspect, I don't know what does. Yes, we believe God is sovereign. Yes, we believe God forgives sins. Yes, we believe God saves. Yes, we believe God can provide and guide us, meet all of our needs. But, Lord, help my unbelief. Help that that haunting, nagging doubt in the back of my mind. I've seen you provide a hundred times, but now I'm doubting because I'm facing the crisis and I'm afraid and I'm scared. I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, Jesus helps his unbelief, all right, and he heals this boy. So we see the healing power of Jesus here. But then that brings us to what really is the point of the passage, especially where Matthew is concerned. And that is no power. The the lack of power in the disciples. Now, I'm indebted to uh, Ligon Duncan, who's the pastor at First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi, for this this observation. But I, I think it's valid. You know, if you read Mark's account, Mark focuses on the healing. He focuses on what Jesus does. And he tells us that later this exchange with Jesus and his disciples takes place and privately in a house. Later, they kind of debrief, Lord, what went wrong? Why, could, why couldn't we do this? Um, Mark, we understand, probably got most of his information from Peter himself. Where was Peter while the disciples were trying to heal this man? He was having the mountaintop experience, right? He was up on the mountain. He wasn't the ones, the, the other nine who were down trying to cast this demon out of the poor boy. Peter, and if Mark is getting his information from Peter here, which seems to be the case, Peter is reluctant to charge his fellow nine disciples with being faithless and twisted and unable to do it. And so the emphasis is more on Jesus' power and healing this boy with some of the conversation that took place. Now, Matthew, where was Matthew? Where was Levi during the transfiguration? He wasn't up on the mountain. He was one of those who were struggling in futility to help the poor boy. And so Matthew does record and sort of emphasizes a little more Jesus' rebuke of the disciples and his emphasis on their faithless inability to accomplish the task. And so we read the disciples came to Jesus privately. Mark tells us they were in a house later and said, why couldn't we cast it out? 
And he says, because of your little faith. Now, I don't know if it's ever struck you as peculiar that Jesus said the problem is little faith, but if you had faith like a mustard seed, which itself was proverbial for its tininess, you could do it. If you had little, your problem is you have little faith, but if you had little faith, you could do it. Well, what what gives with that? What does that mean? Well, when Jesus says, because of your little faith, that's certainly a valid translation, but it doesn't seem he's talking about so much the quantity, you don't have enough faith, as he is the quality. Because of your impoverished faith. When we say of someone, he, he is a small man. We're not talking about how tall or or how short he is. We're talking about a certain meanness of character. Well, that was just a little thing. That was a mean thing. It was a small thing to do. We're not talking about stature. We're talking about character. And I think when Jesus says, because of your little faith, he's saying your faith has has shrunken. Because of the uh, poverty of your faith would be perhaps a good way to, to put it. You see, it's not so much the quality of the faith, but the quality of the object of the faith. Now, back in Matthew chapter 10, we read that Jesus gave his disciples authority, this is verse 1, over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. What's happened in the, the, these, these 17 chapters, seven chapters since Chapter 10, up to verse 7, up to chapter 17. What's gone wrong? Why would Jesus say their faith is impoverished? Well, perhaps it's because they began to think that somehow the power was in them. Remember Jesus going through Samaria and, and James and John, uh, when Jesus was not received well, said, Lord, shall we call down fire on them? as if somehow they themselves had the power to do that. Maybe that's what had begun to happen. They began to less trust in Jesus as much as trust in themselves. Boy, we got the power to do this. We're, We're something here. Until they come to this particular case, and Mark tells us that Jesus says to his disciples that this this kind, this is a particularly virulent, malignant spirit this was this was major league. This wasn't one of those minor league, you know, tempters in training. C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters. If you've never read it, you you are depriving yourselves of, of a treat. Uh, maybe they've been casting out some of these uh, intern demons, tempters in training, and now they uh, met a heavyweight, and uh, they're not up to the task. Because they're really not looking to God, they're looking to themselves. Now, it seems there were basically two problems the way that uh, if we look at this passage together with, uh, with Mark's. One is what Matthew describes here as their little faith. For truly, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, real faith, faith in God, not in yourselves, but a, even just a small trust in God, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Jesus obviously is speaking metaphorically. Uh, it, it, it's not his purpose that the disciples are out doing earth moving. Uh, in fact, it doesn't require a miracle to do that. There are cases, and in, in even in those times and before, of some pretty prodigious feats of earth moving by the Romans, 
by others in siege works and landscaping and so forth. But the point is, just as the, the mustard seed was proverbial for its tininess, to move mountains is a proverb meaning to do great things, to accomplish great works, to, to do what at first seems impossible. And Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you. Why? Because they've got power in themselves? No. But because they're not trusting in themselves. They're looking to God. They're trusting in God. They're resting in God. Now, we need to be careful when, when we read, nothing will be impossible for you. Because the first rule of interpretation is always look at the context. Remember when, maybe you know this verse, memorize it without trying. You know, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, if I just trust in Jesus enough and he strengthens me, I can go out and run a four-minute mile, right? I can just flap my wings and take my my arms and take off, right? Well, of course not uh, to either of those. I can't run a four-minute mile, and I certainly can't fly to the moon on my own. What's Paul mean? Well, he's been talking about how God has enabled him to learn what it means to abound, what it means to be abased, to live in plenty, to live with little. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is saying, God has given me the grace to be content regardless of the circumstances, to be content with little, not to be puffed up with much, whatever it is. God gives him strength to do all things necessary to being content and living the Christian life generally. Well, Jesus is talking about here about building the kingdom, about their interaction, about taking back Satan's turf. For you, nothing will be impossible and so in our case, we would say as far as when we trust in God, perhaps sharing Christ with a neighbor, uh, trusting Christ to allow us to be and to grow into the kind of church that he wants us to be. Those are some of the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about here, to be a diverse group of people who come together as a church, as, as one body. Uh, nothing will be impossible for us in terms of dealing with sin and its effects and its scars in our own lives, that Jesus brings healing even to souls that have been much damaged by sin, our own sin, the sins of others against us. Uh, nothing will be impossible for you. But Mark supplies uh, another, uh, I think, important understanding here. Not just even tiny faith in the right object in God will enable us to do some pretty amazing things, but also prayer. Jesus said, this kind does not come out by anything but prayer. Well, what is he saying there? Well, he's certainly not saying that if you just say the right prayer, it'll be done. Because I imagine they may have prayed. But I think Jesus is talking about prayer there more than just a, 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 a very brief ritual or rite that they, that they perform, but a life of prayer. And what prayer, that life of prayer uh, embodies, and that is a close walk with God. Now, if we take Mark together with Matthew here, it seems that what he's saying here is that we have the need, one, to trust in God, not ourselves. Two, to walk with God and not just try to live the Christian life on our own. A life characterized by prayer. Now, Prayer, you don't need me to tell you, is an important part of the Christian life. Uh, a lot's been written on it, but ultimately the question comes down to, do we pray? You know, do we start the day consciously and even verbally praying, Lord, help me today to be who you want me to be. Help me to live for you 
today. And, and consciously, as we think about it, trusting in the Lord. It seems, again, that that's what was missing in the disciples' lives. They had sort of begun to operate independently of that close walk with God. And that's why Jesus says to them, as Mark records it, this kind comes out only by prayer. So faith, faith directed to God and in God, and prayer. Well, the disciples immediately were uh, met with this sobering experience when they came down off the mountain that their, their brothers, their fellow disciples, were not able to do this, and then they see Jesus deal with this. Uh, we do thank God for mountaintop experiences, whether they're with family or a particular uh, occasion or experience that we're able to enjoy, or maybe a time when God is really working in our lives. But as long as we're in this world, those times all too often seem brief. They keep us going, like a good golf shot occasionally might keep the golfer returning to the course, but they don't last. We do eventually have to come down off the mountain for now. But what the transfiguration taught is that the day is coming when we will be with the Lord, when we will be on that ultimate mountaintop, and we will gaze on the beauty of the Lord, not just for a few moments, but for eternity. And what Jesus showed the disciples is that he is pushing back sin. He is redeeming his people for that day when we will join him in a mountaintop experience that will never end. Let's pray. Our Father, we do long for that day. We pray, come Lord Jesus. We long for that day when we won't be dealing with the petty and the large difficulties of life. Father, we thank you that you are at work in this world even now as you've been at work in our lives and in our families, and we pray for your continued grace. And Father, to live in the valleys, we pray, Lord, for grace to trust you, not in ourselves, but to trust in you with certainly mustard seed faith, and Lord, maybe more than that. And we also pray for grace, Lord, to walk with you, to live each day in conscious dependence upon you and enjoyment of your presence with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.